having done a lot of projects, it is extraordinary the amount of people who will come along and make it quite clear that you've slipped on a banana skin. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure is like very helpful and appreciated. Um, and it's similarly remarkable how five years later, when they come back, uh, if they come back and look at what you've done and they go, oh gosh, yes, I didn't really realise the potential of this house that you, you bought. Um, but actually now you've done it all, it really is remarkable. Hello and welcome to the Country Life Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things country life and indeed country life. I'm James Fisher, your host, and today I'm joined by our esteemed editor of all things interior, Giles Kime. Welcome, Giles. Hello, James. So do you say this is not your first ever time on a podcast? You've done one previously with the great interior designer, Emma Sims-Hilditch? Yes, who I wrote a book about last autumn. Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll get to that in a bit. I think we should start with the beginning, which is when did you first realise that your great passion in life was soft furnishings, Mr. Kime? Well, for quite early on, actually, um, I, uh, like a lot of people who work in this world, I studied history of art at university, and um, it seemed like a logical progression. And I wrote to various editors of various magazines asking for work experience. They either didn't come back to me or wrote back saying sorry, but they didn't have any availability. But one wrote an effusive postcard, and I started in the beginning of August 1986. And I soon realised that there'd been a case of mistaken identity and the editor of the magazine, who had offered me the internship, actually thought I was the son of Robert Kine, the interior designer, who sadly died last year. But uh, it proved to be quite a useful bit of misplaced nepotism. And 35 years later, here I am. Oh, and what, a, what a place. What a better, what better place to be. Um, for those of us listeners who aren't aware of who Robert Kime was, could you give us a sort of brief lowdown on why he was such an amazing figure in the world of interiors? Yes, he was probably the most influential figure in British interior design over the last 30 or 40 years. He was an antique dealer who really discovered the way to create designs that transformed the mood of a space largely through the use of antiques but also color and texture and fabric and he changed the way that people perceived interior design and what the possi- what possibilities it offered oh, right and it was a sort of great inspiration to yourself and i imagine many other designers yes completely and he also had some very high high profile projects, including the uh, restoration of Clarence House and um, also Highgrove uh, when it was the first uh, home of um, the Prince of the then Prince of Wales and Princess Diana. Wonderful. So, after being mistaken for this uh, Robert's son, where did your sort of career take you from there? So I started on the World of Interiors magazine and uh, have more or less on and off worked in interior design journalism ever since with the uh, with, th- with the exception of three years when I was uh, ed- editor of Canter magazine. And it is a really interesting world where with fascinating uh, characters and it's a subject about which most people seem to be interested and it also has the advantage of evolving at a fairly rapid rate. So it's always plenty to be interested in. Is there sort of 
you know, is it sort of very much subject to the to the winds of fashion, much like, well, you know, sort of clothes we wear, architecture, that kind of it is completely subject to the whims of fashion, and I'm very much of the view that it shouldn't be. I think people should take a much longer-term view for all sorts of reasons, particularly the environment, which really suffers from people uh, buying buying something which happens to be uh, of the moment and then dispatching it five years later. And we really need to get over that, and we need to uh, focus more on longevity. Absolutely. Well, longevity is absolutely what we're about here at the magazine. Um, that sort of brings me on to an article you wrote uh, a few years ago, which has the extremely interesting headline, 10 Things I Wish I'd Known About Doing Up Old Houses Before I Started by uh, Country Life's Interiors Guru, Charles mm-hmm. Kime. Could you, could you sort of talk us through this a bit? I mean, you have done up not one, but two, but several sort of what you would describe as old gaffes in your time. Yes, absolutely. So we, we, we're now on our fourth project, all of which have been from slightly different periods. We're now doing our oldest, which was built in, it's a cottage built in 1630 and extended extensively in the late 19th century. And coming to this whole uh, business of, of, of bringing houses to life and dragging them into the 21st century made me r- realise that it was a good opportunity to share some of the lessons that I had learned um, and it really sort of uh, encouraged me to think about the, the, the good and the bad aspects uh, of the various projects we've done. I, I, I like to think we've got better at it over the years and I think that's um, what part of the joy of, of continuing to uh, be effectively a serial mover, although I rather hoping that this one might be our last. Well, before we sort of get into the, the nitty-gritty of it all, I just, mm-hmm. I'd be interested to know what, you know, use that phrase, serial mover. I am I'm someone who finds the concept of moving probably the least pleasant thing in the entire world to the point where I would, I'd rather a house sort of fall down around me before I had to pack my things up again and go somewhere else. Um, so, you know, what is... What is what is the sort of idea in your head when you sort of finish doing something and then all of a sudden you decide, oh, it's time to go and move somewhere else and start a new project? Why? How come you are never satisfied, Giles? Um, I think because it's very important to live in a house that suits your life stage, whether or not that means that you're single or um, uh, have a family or uh, have a family but don't necessarily see them every day and then fly in the nest. Um, I think that brings me rather neatly to my first point is I think when you take on a project you need to decide whether it's a mid-term or long-term project because they require two very different approaches with a mid-term project which let's say for sake of argument is 10 years yeah I think that it's important to think very long long and hard about how much you invest um and think about your exit strategy. I know that sounds slightly brutally commercial, but particularly in the current property market, that mm. is really important. Conversely, if you're doing a legacy project, and it's a project where, as I'm doing at the moment, it's likely to be where I spend the rest of my life, I think you can take a very different approach, which is more about future-proofing worrying less about budget because actually to that budget will be eroded by inflation and 
really focusing on getting things right. Absolutely. How how important is it as well to like find the right property to sort of start this? I mean, is it, you know, there's very little point, for example, in doing up my home, which is a sort of terraced, semi-terraced house in a southeast London housing estate. I mean, is it, I'm guessing for want of a better word, do you need to find the perfect canvas before you're sort of looking at doing something else? That is important, but actually I think almost more important than that is not biting off more than you can chew. Okay. And that really involves being realistic, uh, not just about your your own budget, but also what you have time to do and what you have the capability of achieving. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just, I'm also still sort of reeling at your description of medium term being 10 years, and that's effectively a third of my life. But <laughs> such was the way. Mm. So I noticed as well in your list that you have, remember that you don't live in a museum and that you wrote here, the best interiors are those that serve the needs of the occupant rather than offering a showcase for your own extensive collections. How do you find the, the balance between the two? I know you have many fine items, both on your desk and at home. I think that one has to remember that one is living as... Le Corbusier described it a living machine mm. and it's even if you aren't a modernist I think it's something worth remembering and that every room and every piece of furniture needs to be focused on the people who are using yeah. them and they and that it's delivering delivering both function and comfort and that doesn't mean that you have to live in a minimalist interior. It just means that everything needs to be considered. Do you think there's been a bit too much sort of minimalism going on in the past 10, 15 years? It seems to be very much the, the in thing of the, of the last decade, I would say. Certainly among my friends, but that's only just because we can't. I think it looks lovely in photographs. And I think in reality, one has to be careful. I mean, as, as we're discovering now, sitting in what is effectively a minimalist interior, mm-hmm. it is kind of comfortable but actually if you think about the lack of character and also the acoustics yeah uh, there's a real benefit to living amongst things that absorb sound and create comfort yes no every officer should have more bookshelves and certainly more club fenders um which we'll touch on later i'm sure um have you ever sort of you know, you obviously don't have to name names here, but it would be great if you could, you know, walked into a friend's house and gone, wow, this is just way overcluttered. There's too much going on here. I mean, how much basically of, of the sort of tips on this list are sort of things that are understood to be the sort of industry norm versus things that you yourself have experienced in terms of, oh my God, this room looks terrible, or oh my God, this has just been a total nightmare for me to do. I wish I'd done it a different way. I'm a great believer in the uh, view that beauty is in the bu- in the eye of the beholder, and if people like living amongst clutter, yeah, and it doesn't impact negatively on their own lives or their family's lives, then I think that's absolutely fine. I do think that actually people do attach themselves too closely to objects and I think that uh, while minimalism uh, at one extreme has its downsides I do think there's a middle way 
in terms of really evaluating what you do and don't need to surround yourself with. Would you would you say you have a certain favourite interiors aesthetic, for want of a better description? What would you describe yourself if you were, say, a, a designer yourself? I think everyone's aim ought to be to have an interiors aesthetic that is a reflection of their own taste mm. and needs. And I do genuinely believe that every interior should be a reflection in some way of the person who lives there. So I don't think there is necessarily a prescribed aesthetic, um, but I think instead people need to kind of create their own environments around themselves. No, I think that's a very fair and reasonable response. Um, you mentioned trends earlier and sort of fashion, um, what we both did. Could, mm. Would you be willing to sort of talk about your experiences with regards to that? I mean, you must have seen in your career things go from out to in to out to in, back to out again. So I, I have a conspiracy theory. theory oh, just that, that, now you're going to be flying to the top of the charts. Move over, Joe Rogan. <laughs> just that um, trends in interior design yeah. are a, a sort of silent collaboration between retailers and PRs and journalists. See. And that it helps retailers for people to fall in and out of love with what they buy because then they'll be back a few years later to replace them. Uh, it helps the PRs because it creates stories about what they're doing and it helps journalists because it helps them to fill their pages yeah um as i said earlier i think that it really needs to be addressed and uh interiors is no place for fashion to a certain extent colors will come and go mm. but if it's about a piece of furniture that has the capacity to last 100 years which yeah. actually furniture should do um then I think people ought to take a much longer-term view than they do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm just thinking of where I live, and you know, there's constantly things perfectly good, bits of furniture just being tossed into the bins and all sorts. I mean, this seems like a tremendous waste. And if I had a bigger house, I would hoover it all up, but I quite literally don't have any room for it. Say someone listening to this is thinking about, you know, well, it's just moved into a upsized for example moving into a bigger home and is looking to buy some furniture what would your advice be um from your own experience about what to get because you know i think a lot of people will appreciate your point about trying to keep things for 50 to 100 years but it might not be exactly obvious when you're browsing ikea or other furniture shops you know what actually is going to sort of be functional for that map time if that makes sense i think when buying new furniture, buy the best you can afford. Yeah. And when you're buying vintage furniture, um, buy pieces that have character, but also have fu have are functional and do work, um, and create a combination of the two of things that you love. Yeah. What are, what are you are are you aware of the upcycling trend? Upcycling. Uh, is fantastic. It requires quite a lot of um, specific skill to get it right. I really like the idea of um, people who are providing furniture that has already been upcycled. Mm -hmm. I think it makes an awful lot of sense. There are a lot of brands now that are offering, offering to restore and revive designs that they've made in the past. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for the interiors industry to become much more focused on its environmental impact. 
Do you think that's something that the industry is sort of beginning to take quite seriously? It is, but not fast enough. And it's way behind the fashion industry where there's been a real focus on the circular economy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so next on our list, we have a sort of look at fitted joinery or sort of bespoke items. Would you, what are your experiences of that? So where possible, if budget allows, bespoke joinery or indeed upholstery or bespoke anything really, um, creates so many opportunities to achieve an interior which is a reflection not just of your own taste but also your own needs and the ability to make your own storage whether it's clothes storage or book storage allows you to transform a space and to make the most of the available um, uh, space that it offers yeah um, and as I say, it is expensive, but it is a very, very good investment that will be repaid when you sell. Are there any sort of examples from your time doing up houses? Is there a sort of chest of drawers or a wardrobe that you still think about now, like a sort of long lost ex-girlfriend? <laughs> so one of the first things we did when we bought our current house is that we um, got a brilliant joiner to create um, closed storage in our three children's bedrooms and they are 17th century spaces yeah and it is extraordinary how they made the most of what were uh, very quirky very irregular dimensions and created a kind of um, rather nice seamless 21st century functionality absolutely and that sort of ties into a, a, another point on this list, which is, you know, when dealing with buildings of a certain age, I think you said your property you lived in now was sort of 17th century or something like that. So you must, it must need sort of real specialist builder, architect, carpenter, that kind of thing to sort of bring it to the 21st century. So how important is that relationship with the builder, architect, et cetera? Um, Oddly enough, we've discovered that a relationship with the builder is more important than any other uh, people we've been working with, such as the architect and the structural engineer. Builders, good builders, have amazing practical knowledge, obviously, of, of old buildings, and they are able to share with you the wisdom that they've gained over years at the cliff face of, of, of doing up buildings. And I think that a really good collaborative relationship with a builder, um, in particular local builders we've discovered, because they because they know the area and they know the type of house that they're working on and they have a reputation to uphold. I think they are the, the real key to creating a really beautifully restored house. Have you had any sort of run-ins with any cowboys, I believe is the term? Yes, uh, we have. And I think that complete clarity and transparency is the way forward. And um, there's no point in 
there's no point in falling out but you just have to be completely honest and completely upfront and also make sure that you you have all the agreements in place I want to talk about pain now if that's okay I know you're a big fan of pain yeah here you suggest paint small rooms in dark colours can you talk us through this for me because I when I first read that I thought well that's clearly ridiculous because you're just going to make a small space feel very sort of dark and gloomy and oppressive and in a way make it smaller you want it to be bright and airy and all this kind of stuff but you are you are being you're on the opposite side of that argument there's a there's a bit of conventional wisdom that you that uh, pale colors uh, make rooms that light and airy and the reality is that quite a lot of rooms whether or not they've got low ceilings or north north facing windows will never feel light and airy and so actually one is far better off um, creating a mood that is cosseting yeah. and relaxing uh, and dark colours do that brilliantly in particular uh, there's a an approach to colour called colour drenching which involves mm. painting not just the walls but also the ceilings and the woodwork in the same colour and it really creates the most fantastic atmosphere and I recommend it thoroughly to have any in small rooms, do you have any sort of particular favourite colour that you would recommend, or is it sort of yeah? We to we we painted we painted a room in our annex uh, entirely in a Farnball colour called Inshara, oh, and the painters were horrified, couldn't believe what we were doing. <laughs> um, and I think the other thing to remember when you're using dramatic colours is remember that. Actually, they're not the only thing in a room. And while it might look shocking when you yeah. paint a room in a very dramatic colour, just remember that once it's got furniture in it, it, it takes the edge off it and the results can be wonderful. Have you ever had the opposite where you painted a room and thought, oh, wow, this is fantastic, and then put the furniture in and gone, oh, no, I've made a horrible mistake? We painted a 20-foot uh, drawing room in our last house um, black. Uh-huh. Um, which I thought was brave. Yeah. And um, we learned to live with it, but then we sold it, so it's no longer a problem. <laughs> okay. So the next point here is something called decorate in haste, repent at leisure. And this is basically, long story short, about you know taking your time to find the things that work well in your house rather than I believe the term shabbily gobbles on is mentioned in copy, you know, getting the card out and just going crazy. Could you sort of explain explain this a bit more for us? Yeah, there's a lot to be said for allowing an interior to evolve. Yeah. And certainly not doing anything until you've had a chance to understand how you want to use it and how the light works. Yeah. And the ability to go in and specify everything for an interior might be within the powers of an interior designer. But I think when we're doing our own homes, I think it's really important to, as I say, take your time and put a lot of thought and effort into it. And as I say, if you are taking a, a long-term view and you're creating a legacy project, just ensure that you don't get things wrong. And if you don't rush, you, that you shouldn't do that. Well, yeah, I mean, you say the medium project's 10 years. There's absolutely no need to buy everything in the first week, isn't it? Exactly. No, I think that's very, very sensible indeed. Um, overhead lighting is another point on this list, and this one quite surprised me because I 
you know, called me old-fashioned or maybe new-fashioned, most of the lighting I've ever dealt with in my life is overhead. But you sort of are now saying that maybe actually we need to get rid of it. There's a general rule that uh, the most sympathetic lighting, mm. both to a room and to the people in it, mm. is below eye level. Well, I'm, as a narcissist, this is quite important for me <laughs> to know because you know I do like to look good in my own house. Whereas overhead lighting uh, can completely drain all the colour out of people's skin, mm. isn't a particularly uh, relaxing place. It doesn't create a particularly relaxing environment. Uh, it's always specified by electricians because it's easy and they think that if you want to uh, light a room, you just need as much as light as possible. In fact, what you need is a variety of different lights. Yeah. Most of them low, all of them on the same circuit. Yeah. And the ability to dim them is important. That same circuit one is absolutely key because I've been you know, to many of my friends' large country piles, and there's nothing worse than when you're absolutely steaming at three in the morning, having to turn off every individual light in the sitting room that you've been getting pissed in for the past four hours. Exactly. It's an absolute disaster. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I guess our second to last point, the one that I've really been looking forward to talking about, is, uh, and this is quite the, uh, someone say, clickbaity headline of ignore your friends. Um, so having done a lot of projects, it is extraordinary the amount of people who will come along and make it quite clear that you've slipped on a banana skin. Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure is like very helpful and appreciated. Um, and it's similarly remarkable how five years later, when they come back, uh, if they come back and look at what you've done and they go, oh gosh, yes, I didn't really realize the potential of this house that you, you bought. Um, but actually now you've done it all, it really is remarkable. Um, I think, I don't know what it is, whether it's a sort of general schadenfreude that, that a lot of people um, have a problem with, but um, people are very quick to identify the negatives rather than the positives. Maybe it's just part of the human condition. Yeah, or the, I know it's maybe the English condition. The English condition. Yeah. And you have to ignore it and you have to follow your own instincts. Yeah. Um, and you need to create a space that is for you and for your family yeah. that suits your tastes. Have you, uh, what's the sort of worst piece of advice you've ever been given by a friend? Oh, that we should knock the house down. Oh, not just the whole thing, yeah. just get rid. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's quite, that's quite, uh, maybe aggressive isn't the way, but uh, <laughs> extreme, I think, is what I would go for. <laughs> <laughs> is that the one you're living in now, or is that a. No, the last one. The last one, isn't it? Um, and last on the list, we've got relax. Yeah, people get very uptight about interior design and they think it's a real, a sort of mysterious art. Hmm. And it's really not. And I think that if you really settle in and do your research and trust your instincts yeah it's a really fun thing to do and transforming a house particularly an old one yeah. saving it from itself and bringing it into the 21st century is one of the most rewarding things that you can possibly do and the, i think the only way you can achieve it is by being relaxed about it and would you say that sort of rewarding 
that sense of reward, is that why you keep doing that whole places? Do you think that's one of the reasons? Uh, I think that we have a low boredom threshold. <laughs> but I think that I'm hoping that the house we're in at the moment will offer enough hmm. um, things for us to worry about in years to come. I mean, as well, it's probably also a great playground for you to test out the ideas for your next column in the magazine as well. Definitely, definitely. Um, sort of last thing here that I can think of, just because I've seen it a few times, what are your thoughts on Pinterest? As a I think social media yeah. generally, Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook to an extent, I think mm. one has to be very wary of seeing too much. And there being too many aesthetic rabbit holes to disappear down and that it's much more important to develop your own plan for a house and to work out how the things you see are going to fit into that plan rather than going off in a number of different directions mm -hmm. and you, you can see houses that have been decorated by people who are very immersed in social media because they they tick every trend box but actually they don't have a huge amount of soul if i'm honest yeah. so trust your instincts books i think are almost more valuable because they're the content is more curated yeah um i think certainly the internet's very useful for sourcing but for inspiration I think books and your own instincts are far more important. Fantastic. And I'm guessing as well as sort of looking at the, the works of, you know, interior designers working now. Speaking of which, I mean, have you got any favorites at the moment of people whose stuff you're just thinking, yeah, this stuff absolutely rocks at the moment? I'm a great fan of um, the interior design practice, uh, Sybil Colfax and John Fowler that was launched in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. and is a brilliant example of how it's possible to ensure that interior design evolves because everything it has ever done over the last seven decades has been completely relevant to the uh, time in which the decorators were working and that continues to be the case oh, absolutely i'd say they're probably one of the i mean i've even i've heard of them grand old dames <laughs> of soft furniture um and i guess we should mention club vendors very quickly because i know they're, they're a favorite of both of them both of ours what would you say is the best thing about having a club fender and why is it sitting there with a nice glass of brandy in front of a roaring fire entertaining many, many people? One of the things I love about club fenders is that they are an example of English interiors that is completely timeless and mm. is relevant to any era. And they just keep on coming back and back and get back again and again and again. And... That is because they have a very clear idea of their function in life. And um, everyone needs a club fender, not just to uh, keep small children away from fires, hmm. uh, but also as somewhere to sit. And if they're upholstered in uh, a relatively small amount of fabric, they can completely transform uh, a space and create a great focal point. And as you say, they're a great place to uh, warm yourself uh, after dinner. Yeah, while holding holding court with one's exceptional company. <laughs> um, just to sort of wrap up, you talk about, you know, how 
books more than Pinterest are a great way to sort of seek inspiration for interior design. You've written a few books yourself. Would you like to talk us through your most recent one? So I actually published two books last year, one of which was about uh, Emma Sims Hilditch, mm -hmm. who is an interior designer who is demonstrating that country houses can not only be very desirable and full of character, but also very efficient living spaces. And she she's brilliant at combining the, the best of old and new. And the other was about a house in Maine, in America, uh, that was decorated by the iconic English designer, Nina Campbell. And it's a really interesting insight into the way that how large country houses are evolving quite rapidly. And in, in this case, it has one uh, main house, but then a lot of ancillary accommodation yeah. around the property. And uh, it's a very interesting evolution. Uh, and Nina Campbell is a very interesting interior designer who I've also written another book about five years ago who has had the most extraordinary 50-year career. Fantastic. And lastly, you, you do have a habit of giving talks um, where you yourself do my job and interview interior designers. Have you got any coming up soon that our listeners can attend? Um, we've a certainly next spring at Design Centre Chelsea Harbour, there'll be another whole new programme of, of interior designers coming along to share their wit and their wisdom. Fantastic. And details about all, all of those talks will be in the programme notes. I think that's uh, just about all we have time for today, unless I've forgotten anything, Giles. Cool. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for coming along, Giles. And uh, we will hear from you and talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.